This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Monday, February 14th. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, Norwood's Pinion Park neighborhood plugs along, smart plans for off-season and beyond, Capital Conversation talks policing and wildfire, and a mountain weather forecast. Norwood's Pinion Park housing development is moving forward with move-in set for later this year. These are all for sale units. Uh, The units range from three-bedroom, three-bathroom to two-bedroom, two-bathrooms. Some are attached townhomes, so look like duplexes, except the lot line cuts right through the middle, um, and others are standalone homes. That's David Bruce, project manager for the Pinion Park Project, an initiative of the Telluride Foundation. Bruce gave an update on the housing project at an intergovernmental meeting on Monday. According to Bruce, the project is a pilot using prefabricated home to keep costs low and provide affordable housing for sale in rural communities. The Pinion Park neighborhood is in Norwood, sitting behind the library, building on a three-acre piece of land donated by San Miguel County. Once completed, there will be 24 new homes. Nice front porches on all the units. You walk into a living room space, behind that a kitchen, and then a flex room, which could be a bedroom, it could be an office with a bathroom attached to it. Uh, The space under the stairs gets you down into the crawl, which is additional storage, or out the door to the garage. Upstairs, you see uh, Uh, In in the front of the house, uh, a bedroom, master bedroom with a bathroom inside, little study area, which, you know, could be also a TV space or, you know, just communal family room. And in the back, another bedroom. So these are pretty nice units. The goal is to house the workforce already living in the community, but are challenged when it comes to purchasing a home. Bruce says they've already heard from a number of community members who are interested. Police officers, office managers, nurses, restaurateurs, deputy sheriffs, realtors, bakers, students, bellmen, you know, exactly the people that are struggling to find stable housing in this area expressed interest. The homes will be deed restricted. Bruce notes the foundation is still working out the details for what eligibility will look like. There's a work requirement, a minimum of 40 hours a month for eight out of 12 months. That's really to fit the mold of a teacher. Um, There's a restriction on income, which we're capping at 120% of area median income. That's just under $72,000 for one individual and just over $100,000 for a household of four. Elaine Damas, VP of Initiatives at the Telluride Foundation, adds the foundation intends to look to Norwood's workforce first. I'm hopeful that every person that lives, that works and lives in Norwood now that wants a Pinion Park home will get one before it goes to what we're calling round two, which would be cast the net a little wider once everyone in that community has been served. The Telluride Foundation aims to have the homes in place and ready for move-in by summer 2022. Interested individuals can fill out a prospective homeowner questionnaire for the neighborhood at pinionparknorwood.co. It may still be February, but for the San Miguel Authority for Regional Transportation, the spring off-season is just around the corner. This fall was the first time the local transit body took over operation and management of the off-season bus service. 
Smart Leadership has been reviewing their performance in preparation for the spring service. Here's Smart Operations Manager and Senior Planner, Carrie DiStefano, speaking at a Smart Board meeting last week. In general, the Lawson Hill riders appreciate the increased service, but we did get a lot of feedback about the timing, the way the, uh, the traditional off-seasons worked. The school kids had to get up a little earlier, and they were not happy about it, and we heard a lot about that. DiStefano says the transit body wants to address issues of timing and consistency, which got them thinking bigger picture about making the whole transit system more user-friendly and focusing on key connections. Some of them are revol- revolved around the bus staying. We were cognizant of getting people to both Telluride and the Mountain Village at works for AM work starts to getting students to the middle school, high school, as well as the mountain school for their starts, and um, getting commuters to Telluride and the mountain village for later starts, and then getting everybody home. The transit body, she says, tried juggling timing to optimize making those key connections. They also want to get the off-season schedule to the point where it can stay the same once off-season is over, so there's no schedule change. That would mean the regular season Lawson Hill bus would be a 45-minute loop rather than the current 30 minutes. There's longer periods of time between buses. However, we are considering adding a couple of midday runs. That's been something that I think the Lawson Hill riders would appreciate. And our last run would go a little bit later. DeStefano presented a draft schedule to the smart board with Lawson service running from 6.45 a.m. to noon and roughly 3 p.m. to 10.40 p.m. The board was largely in favor. Here are board members Marty Prohaska and Lance Waring. The ability to not change the schedule in the offseason is such a benefit. It feels like this is simple. It's realistic with the 45-minute time, so we're no longer off the back and losing customers because we had a, an impossible target of a half an hour run times. DiStefano adds the schedule is not final and the timing would still be up for discussion. Smart, she says, is also considering adding regular season service between Lawson Hill and Mountain Village during peak travel times. There isn't yet a start date for that potential addition, but they're also considering ways for other routes to connect with it when it does roll out. With respect to some of our other regional transits, uh, we're looking at the addition of a stop at the Lawson Hill Park and Ride by the Down Valley bus, which would facilitate travel up into the Mountain Village. We're also looking at the addition of a stop at again at Lawson Hill Park and Ride by at least one of the Norwood buses. So again, if people are coming up into the Mountain Village for work, they would no longer have to go all the way into town. Finally, on SMART's list of upcoming changes and expansions is the addition of a midday Norwood bus. They don't yet have the timing for that added run, but are planning to survey Norwood residents to see what the best option would be. Bills looking at policing and wildfire are heading through Colorado's legislature. In this installment of Capital Conversation, KOTO State House reporter Scott Franz shares the latest. Hey, 
Scott, thanks for taking a couple minutes to chat with me today. Hey, my pleasure, Julia. So I wanted to talk with you first about um, some bills that Governor Jared Polis has gotten behind recently. You reported, um, he says, will make Colorado safer. Can you share a little bit about what these bills would do? Yeah, so a lot of them include uh, grant money. Um, so th- there's a bill that's, that's going to be introduced that would um, send millions of dollars to police departments around the state um, so that they can better um, attract and retain um, their workforce. And, you know, they specifically think this money will help create a more diverse um, police force. Um, you know, we've been hearing from police chiefs in recent months that, um, you know, that they've, they're facing kind of historic recruiting challenges right now um, because of the, you know, partly because of this, um, you know, reckoning they've had with policing. Um, you know, there's also a legislation that supports what's known as the co-responder model. Um, the thinking there is that sometimes healthcare workers, therapists are, are better um, suited to respond to calls and de-escalate the situation when somebody's in crisis instead of, you know, having just a police officer. So, you know, another big piece is sending money um, to support that model. Yeah. You know, I'm curious specifically about, you know, sending money to help police departments maybe recruit more people. You know, is there any talk about, you know, investing money in police to help make the state safer when across the country there's been so many conversations from some folks saying that, you know, police aren't necessarily the best people or or aren't helping to make um, communities feel safer and kind of what that juxtaposition is. Yeah, you know, that is an interesting dynamic. and But I think, you know, the, the governor at his, um, you know, announcement about this public safety proposal, um, he definitely sees law enforcement as a critical, you know, ally in, in bringing about this change. For example, he had a couple sheriffs, including one from Summit County there. But, you know, I, I think there's going to be a healthy debate you know, as these bills go forward about, you know, whether they go far enough. And, and you know, you kind of mentioned, you know, one potential conflict there. And so we'll just have to see kind of, you know, what, what voices, you know, come out as they debate this funding. I also wanted to touch on some bills aimed at um, addressing wildfire or kind of the aftermath of wildfire. I can imagine with at least in our part of the state, uh, a low amount of snow so far this year, that we might expect to see some wildfires. And there's some bills going to address kind of how people may recover from that. Can you share what those bills are? Sure. One of the most impactful uh, looks to be a bill that would change requirements for insurance companies. Uh, so right now, you know, if someone loses their home and personal property in a wildfire, um, you know, some people have had to go through lots of hurdles and hoops to you know, send in a detailed inventory of the things they lost. And insurance companies right now are only required to cover um, about 30% of the costs up front. Um, Lawmakers have a proposal that's advancing right now that would increase that to 65%, you know, up front of the the cost of the personal items and property lost. Um, The thinking is to get money more more quickly to people. And this was actually something that, um, you know, came out of the uh, East Troublesome Fire. There were some 
you know, really tough stories that lawmakers heard from survivors in that blaze about how long um, and complicated the process was to be, you know, get reimbursed for, you know, the loss of property. Um, so that one is marching forward with um, pretty strong bipartisan support. Uh, there's also another interesting bill that really aims to ramp up the state's ability to investigate wildfires. Um, you know, there's been some um, revealing studies done and, and reporting from other outlets that, you know, Colorado has not been very well equipped to um, determine the causes of fires. And lawmakers, you know, really see that as a, as a conflict because they think, you know, to be able to prevent fires, you need to first be able to figure out what started them. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, on that note, obviously, um, addressing wildfire is going to come from a lot of different vantage points. But, you know, both of these bills that you're mentioning are kind of the after the fact, after a fire has happened, what are things that we can do? Is there any um, effort or bills being put forth that would maybe address, like, how do we keep these from starting in the first place? There is a bill that is already moving forward to increase money for wildfire prevention awareness campaigns. There's a lot of skepticism from especially Republicans about how far that money will actually go, you know, because these education programs have been going since uh, the 1990s. And, um, you know, they question, you know, just how good of an investment it will be to, um, you know, boost that funding. I am hearing, though, that, you know, especially um, in the wake of the Marshall Fire, that there are still conversations going among lawmakers about wildfire prevention. Uh, so I think, you know, it'll take um, probably at least another week for, you know, those ideas to, to become clear and see what direction they're headed. But but I think they're still crafting their response on the prevention side of things. Well, Scott, thank you so much for taking a couple minutes to chat with me today. Hey, my pleasure, Julia. Thank you. That was State House reporter Scott Franz reporting from Denver. It's time to find a new sledding spot. On Monday, Telluride announced Firecracker Hill is closed to sledding due to unsafe conditions. It's icy and fast because of lack of snow. Telluride Parks and Recreation Director Stephanie Jacquet notes they are hoping conditions will improve with snow in the forecast and icy conditions or no. Jacquet says Parks and Rec always recommends individuals wear helmets and use caution while on the sledding hill. There is no definite timeline for when the sledding hill will reopen. Mountain Film is still months away, but for those who can't wait, the festival is hosting its annual Winter Shorts fundraiser at the Palm Theater this weekend. Winter Shorts will feature 10 short films, including A Concerto is a Conversation, looking at themes of race, family, and belonging, with a conversation between composer Chris Bowers and his 91-year-old grandfather. There will be Manover, a film featuring animations with skiing to keep you on the edge of your seat, and Sibling Rivalry, which shares the showdown between professional mountain bikers Becky and Ryan Gardner on the trails of Telluride. In addition to the films, there will also be a silent auction with everything from Wagner skis to Mountain Film Festival passes. The event will take place on Sunday, February 20th, starting at 5.30 p.m. with films starting at 6.30. Tickets are available at mountainfilm.org. Mountain Film is requiring all attendees to be fully vaccinated against COVID-19 and masks will be required. As the weather turns warmer and snow begins to melt, 
humans and antlered animals may tread the same paths. If that occurs and a human stumbles upon a shed antler, Colorado Parks and Wildlife is reminding you to not pick up the antlers. Collecting shed antlers is prohibited on all public land through April 30th in order to protect big game and sage grouse. CPW notes big game and sage grouse are in basic survival mode during the winter, and being forced to move and burn calories unnecessarily can hurt the species. In Colorado, deer shed antlers from mid-January through March, elk from February to April, and moose from November through January. Individuals who are caught collecting shed antlers may face a fine. As climate change becomes more front and center across the world, communities are looking to transition away from fossil fuels. This winter, KOTO is partnering with stations in the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition to report a series of stories looking at that shift. Today, we're heading to the I-70 corridor. Holy Cross Energy is a utility cooperative that provides electricity to 43,000 people from Aspen to Vail to Parachute. In 2020, Holy Cross established the 100 by 30 plan to provide 100% renewable energy to its members by 2030. Aspen Public Radio's Hallie Zander reports on how the co-op is making this bold transition and what comes next. Chris Bilby is a research engineer for Holy Cross Energy. Over the past five years, he's been working to get a solar farm up and running near Aspen and Woody Creek. And in early October, it began producing energy. It gathers photons from the sun and converts those into electrons that we use in our house. The project is called Pitkin Solar. It sits on 35 acres once used as a wastewater sludge field by the Aspen Consolidated Sanitation District. Bilby says it's a good plot for solar panels because it can't be used for residential or commercial construction. It's almost like what it was meant to become. Yeah. Over the course of a year, the solar farm provides 10 to 12 gigawatt hours of energy, which is enough to power roughly 900 homes. That's 2% of its customer base. And the renewable energy generated here contributes to Holy Cross's 100 by 30 plan. In 2030, the co-op aspires to provide all of its electricity from renewable energy sources like wind, solar, hydroelectric dams, and methane capture plants. One of our, our company goals is to um, lead the transition to the renewable energy future. That's Sam Whalen, the manager of power supply for Holy Cross. The plan was announced in 2020. Let's get a goal out there um, that's loftier than a lot of these 70 and 80 percent um, goals that we've seen across the industry. Whalen says the co-op can be this aspirational because Holy Cross has more flexibility with its contracts than other utilities. It's also much smaller in size compared to other utilities in Colorado, like Excel Energy, a for-profit corporation serving over 1 million people. So last year, 47% of Holy Cross's energy portfolio was renewable, which is almost halfway towards its goal. And let's see if we can accomplish it and, and do it in a way that's responsible um, and, and hopefully you know, pave the way and help show others how it can be accomplished as well. But when Holy Cross eventually provides 100% renewable energy to its members, that doesn't mean its operations will be completely carbon-free. Methane capture, woody biomass, and hydroelectric dams all produce greenhouse gases, even though they are renewable energy sources. 
Beatriz Soto is the director of Protegete, a program with Conservation Colorado that engages the Latino community in leading climate solutions. Clean energy is absolutely a part of the solutions for our climate crisis. She says the 100 by 30 plan is a bold and important goal, but these renewable energy sources that continue to emit carbon are just the lesser of two evils. These are temporary solutions and that we have to keep pushing forward and pushing our technology um, to have absolutely net zero clean energy. That is our future. Holy Cross also owns 8% of the Comanche 3 coal plant in Pueblo. According to the Colorado Sun, that plant is the biggest source of pollution in Colorado. Holy Cross sells the energy produced by this coal to a subsidiary of Excel, so those emissions are not part of its portfolio. However, they are still entering the atmosphere. Here's Waylon again. There's only so much that we can do to influence what happens with that. We're a minority owner. We own 8% of a coal plant. Um, and so it's one of the challenges that we face. Holy Cross is focusing on what they can control by building new solar farms and microgrids in its service area. The Pitkin Solar Project in Woody Creek will soon be joined by solar farms in Glenwood Springs, Silt, and Parachute. While looking up at the solar panels in Woody Creek, Bilby says he believes that Pitkin Solar can set a powerful example. I know this is the future. Like, this is coming. This is a good good project to put into the ground to show that, that we can do this. We can do this in places like Aspen. Um, it's really an asset that the community is going to have for 15, 20, 30 years. Wayland says these solar farms contribute to the co-op's goal. He also acknowledges the environmental work at Holy Cross will not be finished in 2030. Holy Cross hopes to drive down emissions at its buildings and electrify fleet vehicles by 2035. Hallie Zander, Aspen Public Radio News. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for mostly cloudy skies tonight with a low in the mid-20s. Tuesday should be cloudy, becoming sunny, with a high around 45 degrees. Tuesday night, expect mostly cloudy skies, with a low around 20. Wednesday, there is a 90% chance of snow showers, with a high around freezing. Wednesday night calls for mostly cloudy skies, with snow showers likely and a low around 10 degrees. This has been the news for Monday, February 14th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, a personal commentary. Hi, my name is Robin, and I'm the Advocate Coordinator at the San Miguel Resource Center. We are offering another 40-hour victim advocate training beginning next Tuesday on February 22nd. The trainings will be entirely virtual and will go from 6 to 8 p.m. every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday for three consecutive weeks. We will cover subjects such as sexual assault, domestic violence, child advocacy, trauma and mental health, the legal system, and more. We've invited guest speakers who are experts in their fields to present to the class offering valuable and unique perspectives. Once you've completed the 40-hour training, you will be a certified victim advocate in the state of Colorado. You will also then be eligible to volunteer at the San Miguel Resource Center on our 24-hour helpline, though there is no volunteering requirement. If you are interested in signing up or would like more information, please email me at advocates, which is A-D-V-O-C-A-T-E-S, at smrcco.org, or give us a call at 970-728-5660. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. 
If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at Cuddo. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.